You recall, if you were here last month, that this is the second of a two-part series involving the king of Assyria. <clears throat> last month we looked at primarily Isaiah chapter 37, and we looked at the human side of the king of Assyria's encounter with King Hezekiah, God's people. We looked at Isaiah 37. You can also look at 2 Kings 19 for that account. And at the end of the day, what was going on was that the Assyrians were coming against God's people. And Hezekiah needed help. And Hezekiah prayed. And God answered. God answered and God struck dead 185,000 Assyrians. But only because Hezekiah prayed. Last month we were looking at the human side of, of this event. Today we're going to look at what's going on at the divine side of this. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 10 today. And if you want to turn there, I'm going to be starting at verse 5, which is going to be our text for today. But the reason all of this is happening is, is that God's people have once again been rebellious, and God is going to judge God's people. You can read back starting in chapter 8. Things are not going well for God's people once again. And starting in chapter 9, Scripture says something four times. It says it in chapter 9, verse 12. It says it in chapter 9, verse 17. It says it in chapter 9, verse 21. And it says it in chapter 10, verse 4. Same phrasing, four times. For all this, His anger has not turned away and His hand is stretched out still. God's people are being godless. They're called godless twice in the immediate context here. In chapter 10, verse 6, they're called godless and in chapter 9, verse 17, they're called godless. So let's read Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 19, and see how the Lord is going to deal with His people being godless. Isaiah 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the, the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, <clears throat> he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. 
Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. <clears throat> so those 15 verses are a summary of what happened with the account we read last week. I mean, not last week, last month. Of, of what happened in Isaiah 37. When we see Sennacherib and his Assyrian army coming against God's people, coming in from the north to invade, to conquer. And they did conquer. And we also saw last month that the reason that Sennacherib conquered so many cities, so many nations, was that the Lord decreed that he conquer these nations and cities. Isaiah chapter 37 says so. And you go, well, what, why would the Lord do that? Well, to set up what's happening here. But you look at this account. Let's, let's think about what's going on here. And let's think about what happens in the, in the fullness of our Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And let's think about what's going on in the Middle East today. We see what's happened in the last weeks in the Middle East. And we're appalled by it. But that's Old Testament Israel's life. Over and over and over again. All those battles that we read on, on, on pieces of paper with ink, they're not merely academic when you see the news and you see the horror of what's happening in battle, in war. There's a reason the old saying goes, war is hell. Because it is. But we see ethnic Israel being attacked. We see Israel fighting back. That's our Old Testament. But I'm going to issue a caution here, and I know that this is one of these things that's going to get me into trouble with somebody here. What does Jesus say about the spiritual state of ethnic Jews who don't believe in Him? What does John say about the spiritual state of ethnic Jews who don't believe in Him? What does Paul say about the spiritual state of ethnic Jews who don't believe in Him? What does John say about the spiritual state of ethnic Jews who don't believe in him? They don't know the Father. They don't. There's a reason that Jesus, Peter, Paul, John, Jews, according to the flesh, evangelize their brethren according to the flesh. Because without faith in Christ, they did not have salvation. They were not saved by their bloodline. They were not saved by their physical circumcision. They were lost. They needed to be found. And I know that it can be easy when we see what's happening in the news to see the tragedy to think that, well, because a bunch of Muslims killed these Jews, these Jews are saved. They're not just because Muslims killed them. How many people went to eternity and to damnation that day. If they didn't know Christ, they did. 
And it didn't matter what their bloodline was physically. That's a scary thought. Right that day, that music festival, how many of those people thought they were going to enter into eternity that day? I'll bet you not a one of them. And Hamas comes, and a whole bunch of them entered into eternity. And how many of them are damned today? And Israel fights back. How many of them are damned today? That's the reality of what's going on presently. There's a reason that Jews need to be evangelized. Because their birthright will not save them. Jewish men, Jesus, Paul, John, Peter, are very, very clear on that. That apart from faith in Christ, you are not saved, Jew or Gentile. So what we have going on here is a long time ago what we see now. Military issues between ethnic Israel and people who are not ethnic Israel. And what's going on in this passage is what we see throughout the Old Testament again. Is that time and time again, we know Israel fought battles. Israel fought battles. And what do we do with it now here? How do we look at this passage? This passage presents some theological issues. If you really read it, and you have to really read it and take it at face value. This passage is what it says it is. When you read verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. This is what's going to happen. God is sending Assyria against His people to punish His people. This is nothing more than what happened with the Babylonians later on. Jeremiah keeps, keeps warning the people and warning the people. And everyone's saying, well, hey, there's peace. Well, how'd it turn out? You got the book of Lamentations to tell you how it turned out. And when you read the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah does not talk about those nasty Babylonians doing what they did to God's people. Jeremiah repeatedly says, Lord, you did this to us. Now the Lord used the Babylonians to take down Jerusalem, 586, 587 B.C. But it's the same sort of thing. We know that the story turned out here where Hezekiah prayed and Jerusalem did not fall, but we know later on Jerusalem did fall. And it fell because the Lord sent the Babylonians to punish God's people in accordance with the covenant curses in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. What happened there when Jerusalem fell was nothing more than, than God fulfilling what He had told His people was going to happen if they were rebellious. And we can draw one conclusion from this. God keeps His promises. He keeps His promises of salvation. He keeps His promises of judgment. And we as God's people today need to remember that. We do not want to take the grace of God in vain do we, today? We need to learn from passages like here. Why is this happening? Because, because Scripture says Israel was being godless. Now we can say, well, we're not godless. Well, be careful. <laughs> Take heed lest ye fall. So we look at this passage. Let's get into the passage. 
There's a judgment pronounced. That's what a woe is. Woe to Assyria. Judgment's pronounced on Assyria. But what does it say right after that? This is the Lord speaking in verses 5 through 11. Woe to Assyria. Judgment upon Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. This rod and staff is not the rod and staff of the comfort of Psalm 23. This is a rod and staff that is used for judgment. And it's used in judgment against God's people. And Assyria is God's rod, is God's staff. And how can God pronounce woe upon Assyria for doing what God wants them to do? We'll get there later on in the passage. But that's, you, you read that. How can this be? How can, this, how can God pronounce woe upon Assyria for doing what God has sent them to do? We'll get there by the end of the passage. Verse 6, Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Here we go. God is sending a godless nation, Assyria, against another nation that he calls godless here. It's just that one of the nations should not be godless. But because of their rebellion, God calls them godless. Against the people of my wrath. The people of my wrath here in verse 6 are not the Assyrians. The people of his wrath in verse 6 is Israel. And what is Assyria going to do? They're going to take spoil, they're going to seize plunder, and what that's going to look like, we'll look at later on in the passage, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Okay, walking upon somebody is to humiliate them. You walk on somebody, we still see it. We see it in, in athletics. Somebody's, somebody's mad at somebody and they stomp on somebody. You see that in football, you see it in soccer. Or you even see it in basketball. They want to humiliate the other guy. And treading down a people like the mire, the mud of the streets, is treating them like dirt. That's what mud is, right? That's what mire is. It's just dirt at the end of the day. And God is sending Assyria against His people to humiliate them, to stomp them down, to treat them like dirt. Verse 7, though. But he does not so intend. Who's he? This is the king of Assyria. He does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But, again, another contrast. It is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. King of Assyria, in his heart, is not coming to do the will of God. The king of Assyria is coming here to do his will to come against the people of God because they're just another nation that, that the king of Assyria thinks he can tread like mud in the streets like he has because we have these rhetorical questions posed by what the king of Assyria would be thinking here and the Lord's telling us what these rhetorical questions are. And he says, aren't these, aren't these cities like these nations, these kingdoms, just like the other ones? Kalno like Carchemish, Hamath like Arpad, Samaria like Damascus. He just thinks he's going to walk over Judah and Jerusalem like he did everyone else. Because that's what he does. You read about the way the Assyrians, the Assyrians invaded nations. It was not pretty.
pretty. The old, the old take no prisoners phrase goes, doesn't go nearly far enough with Assyria. These people were wicked and they liked it. And the king thinks, these are just, this, this is just another little people that I'm going to swat away like a mosquito. Verse 10, As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Remember, Samaria is up north. Samaria, the northern kingdom up there, has already fallen by this time. They had already taken it. King of Assyria had already taken it. It's no problem for him. And for him, it's just another day at work. I'm going to keep on advancing. I'm going to do the same thing to Jerusalem that we did with these people up north as they advance southerly through the nation. These rhetorical questions posed by the king of Assyria. This is no big deal, according to him. I'm just going to do what I want to do. He doesn't know that he's doing the will of God here. He's doing it in his mind because of his greatness. He's doing it because of his own nation's power, his own nation's military might. But does not our Bible say that pride goes before destruction? Pride goes before destruction. What about the haughty spirit? Same thing. You've got a man here who is proud. You've got a man here who does not know that he is but a mere tool in the hand of the living God. And he thinks that I am doing and I am conquering what I conquer because of who I am and what I can do and what I have built in this army of Assyria. Notice verse 12, though. It doesn't say when the king has finished all his work. It says when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem. What is he going to do? The Lord is going to punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Remember, verse 5, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. That personal pronoun, my, is talking about the Lord. The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, will be punished for his arrogant speech and the boastful look in his eyes. This goes back to what Brother McCann talked about last week and the will of man. Did the king of Assyria do exactly what he wanted to? Yes. Did anybody force the king of Assyria to do anything against his will? No. He did what was in his heart, and he did what was in his heart because he wanted to do what was in his heart. And what was in his heart, he wanted to treat God's people just like any other nation. How can God hold the king of Assyria responsible here? That's not fair. That's the wrong answer. That's the wrong way to respond to this. The way to respond to this one way I'll hold. Don't say that's not fair. One way we ought to be responding to this is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Amen. 
You don't mess with this God. Should the king of Assyria have known that this was wicked? Yes, because he knew who God was. Romans 1 applies here. He knew who God was. He knew what God's invisible attributes were. And he suppresses that knowledge in his sin and goes against the people God has chosen for himself. And it's wicked. And he's held accountable for it. And saying that's not fair does not fly. Because you and I don't get to determine what truth is here. Scripture determines what truth is. Scripture says he's accountable. Scripture says God decreed that he do this. Scripture says he did what he wanted to. And leave it there because that's as far as Scripture goes. Where men get into trouble is, is they try and go, well, this really can't be because, well, if the king of Assyria was just the rod of God's anger, if he was God's staff, well, he's really not doing what he wants to do and it's not right for God to hold him responsible here. God, who has breathed this out through, through his spirit, says, yes, he is responsible. We don't need to reconcile anything here. We don't need to do the, the exegetical gymnastics or contortions that some people try and do to, to make this make sense to them. God, in His plan, twisted, twisted is probably not the right word, turned, Proverbs 21.1, did He turn the king's heart like a stream of water? Yes, He did. We believe that until He does it. <laughs> then we look at it and go, well, that really can't be. Well, yeah, it really can be because it really is, it really was, and it really will all be in this age. Why do things happen that are crazy out there nowadays? God is turning people's hearts like a stream of water where He wants to. Will people be held accountable for what's going on in whatever war you want to pick now? If it's wicked, yes, they will. Even as God turns hearts that way. You can, you can bring that down to a more personal level. It's just not in wars. Little things in our lives. People can do really wicked things to us, can't they? People can betray us. People we don't know can hurt us greatly. Is God surprised by any of this? Does God wake up on Sunday morning here, <laughs> November 5th, and go, whoa, I didn't know that was going to happen. No, I've got I to modify my plan to make sure that this works out right. That's not the way that God's governance of His creation works. Whatever's happening today has always been part of God's eternal plan. And just because it's been part of God's eternal plan, do not have that make you into a fatalist. A fatalist says, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. There's nothing we can do about it. Scripture doesn't tell you that that's the way you live your life either. Scripture says, even if you knew... <laughs> What was going to happen here, Scripture says, you do what Hezekiah did and you pray. And prayer was the means by which this all shook out. We can't just look at, at things that happen in our lives and, and 
and, and say that, well, God has decreed this, therefore we don't do anything about it, we just sit back and wait. Well, I, I know that God has, God has chosen me for salvation, but He hasn't chosen me to be saved yet. Is that the way Scripture talks? Scripture never talks like that. Scripture talks that there is a chosen people, and Scripture tells those chosen people to repent and believe today. Not to put it off. Scripture doesn't let us have license to go and just say, well, this is the way that God's plan is. You have to be careful in your Reformed doctrine here. Is God absolutely sovereign over everything, including the actions of men? Yes. Is man absolutely responsible for his own response, his own response to God's laws, to God's decrees, to God's precepts? Yes. Don't try and go where Scripture never goes in those matters. Scripture says man is absolutely responsible. Just like here, the king of Assyria is absolutely responsible for what he did in going and attacking God's people, even as the king of Assyria was the rod of God's anger. Does Scripture give us the minute details of how that can be? It doesn't. What Scripture does say is obey. Scripture says pray. Scripture says strive for holiness. Scripture says believe. Again, just because you believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, don't let that turn you into a fatalist where you just sit back and everything is passive. You just keep waiting for stuff to happen. Well, because I know God's decreed it. I know God's decreed that that my, my neighbor be saved. Okay, well, first off, how do you know that? <laughs> you don't know that. But even if you did know that, let's, for the sake of argument, let's say you did know that. Even if you did know that for the sake of argument, are you supposed to now sit back and wait for God to zap your neighbor? What does Scripture say? We're supposed to go. <laughs> As you go, <laughs> God uses means in order to carry out His eternal plan. God is, not, God, is not, God is not trying to have to panic and figure out how to make everything go the way He wants to go day by day. God's got an eternal plan. The day you were saved, that was no surprise to God. The day that person shared truth with you, that was no surprise to God. Why did it happen? Why did that person share truth with you? They shared truth with you because God sent them. Now, do they necessarily know that they got this celestial email from God and said, go talk to Nellie today. Go talk to Dorothy today. No. They went because they were obedient. It's a funny thing that, funny thing that happens when you're obedient to what God tells you to do, isn't it? <laughs> God will bless your obedience. But let's not turn into people who are absolutely passive because we believe that God is sovereign. We do believe God is sovereign. But at the same time, we have a massive responsibility. We have a responsibility to share. We have a responsibility to love. We have all these responsibilities. And every man, every woman has that responsibility. Acts chapter 17, right? The times of ignorance God has overlooked. 
And he's now appointed a man who's going to judge the world in righteousness. And God commands all people everywhere to what? To repent. Today. Not waiting, not waiting to receive repentance. Not somebody who's read the Bible and somebody who's grown up in a Reformed church knowing that, well, I know that, that, God, that repentance is a gift from God and faith is a gift from God. I just haven't received the gift yet. So I, that's why I haven't, when you ask, well, that's why I haven't believed and repented yet. Scripture doesn't talk like that, does it? Scripture tells that person, you repent and believe today. Don't wait for the gift. You're going to look long and hard to find Scripture telling anybody to wait for the gift. Scripture presses people to respond today to what Scripture tells people to respond to. But we look at this, verse 12. The king is going to be punished because the king is responsible. What does the king say? Verses 13 and 14 tell us. Here we go. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. How has the king conquered these other nations, these other kingdoms? He thinks it's all about him. We know from the last message, he conquered those kingdoms because God ordained that he conquer those kingdoms. But he thought it was all about him. He's done it by the strength of his hand. He's done it by his wisdom. He removes the boundaries of people. We know that, that there are passages in our Old Testament that talk about you shall not remove the boundary stones. He's going to set up his own boundaries here. But he's going to plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. He's saying, like a bull, I conquer kings because of who I am. But then verse, verse 14 goes to what I mentioned earlier. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. What's the imagery here? A nest, some sort of bird where there are eggs. Usually, mama bird is guarding the nest. <laughs> Somebody's guarding the nest. I'd say somebody in reference to an animal. But the creature is guarding the nest. The king says, this is the way that I, this is the way that I roll here. When I conquer, it's just like the nest is not guarded at all. I just walk up to, I don't have to deal with the, with the, with the bird pecking at me as I'm trying to get, or, or you know, flapping its wings or clawing at me while I'm trying to get the eggs out of there. It's like there's no protection at all for these eggs. He equates nations, kingdoms, to unprotected eggs in a nest that he just walks up, grabs them like there's nobody, nothing there protecting them. That's his ego. And it may have been working that way. It may have been that relatively simple for him because they just roll through cities. They roll through nations. They roll through kingdoms. But by the strength of my hand, what's, what's the divine response to that? Verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? Rhetorical question. What's the answer to the rhetorical question? No. As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or if a staff should lift him who is not wood. No. What's going to happen because of the arrogance of the king of Assyria? Verses 16 through 19 tell us. 
The Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. That, that phrase there, the Lord God of hosts, is something Isaiah really likes in re- reference to God. He uses Lord, what the ESV translates as Lord God 32 times in Isaiah. You'll note in your ESV, God is in the all caps. Why? Because that's Yahweh that is being translated there. That typically comes into the ESV as Lord with the capital L and then the small caps O-R-D. The ESV doesn't want to say, therefore, the Lord, Lord of hosts. They want to say the Lord God of hosts. King James doesn't have a problem with that. King James says, therefore, the Lord, comma, the Lord of hosts. But that Lord God, or the Lord, the Lord of hosts, that Lord there in verse 16 is Adonai. So we've got Adonai Yahweh. When you read the way Isaiah uses this, this is talking about the Lord God in His power, in His might, in His sovereignty. And the Lord God of hosts, I would hold that you can make the point that this is really talking about Jesus. Isaiah 6 talks about the Lord of hosts, seated on the throne, high and exalted. And we know again from John chapter 12, that vision that Isaiah had was of Christ. Therefore, Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, will send wasting sickness among His stout warriors. Do you think Jesus can do that? Do you have a category for a Jesus like that? Scripture does, right here. Do you have a category for the Jesus of Luke 19.27 who says, bring these guys before me and slaughter them? Do you have a category for the Jesus of Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse. Look at all the blood in Revelation 19. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. What's a response to this? Yes, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But it should also be worship. Do we have a God, a Christ, who is worthy in His nature, in His being, who is worthy of being fallen down before and worshipped? Or is He merely the guy who says, let the little children come unto Me? He's both. Is He gentle? Is He humble? Is He lowly? Is He meek? Yes but He's also the Lord God of hosts who sees to it that 185,000 soldiers die. Jesus is worthy of worship. Do we fear Jesus? Remember what He said. Do not fear Him who can only kill the body, for He can do nothing more to you. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who after he is killed can cast both body and soul into hell. Is our Christ worthy of fear? Just not love, but holy fear. Biblical fear. Scripture says he is. But that's what he does here. We know that the way the rest of this played out here, verses 16 through 19, 
185,000 soldiers dead. We, we see what we've seen on the news with, with 1,000, 1,500 people dead. Can you imagine 185,000 people dead? I, I can't. I can't. But that's what happens when people rebel against the Holy God. Nothing unjust happened there. Think about this. 185,000 men sent to hell one night. Think about this. When we pray, come Lord Jesus. We pray that Jesus come back. Amen. <laughs> I want Him to come back. <laughs> Soon. But when we pray that, what happens when He comes back? Grace ends for the lost. The common grace. His kindness. The rain falling on the unjust factor. It ends. And there's no more second chances. People don't have another chance to say, you know, I need to go back and read that tract again. They can go to hell with that tract in their hand. When we pray that, when we pray for Christ to come back, when He will judge the world in righteousness, and when He comes back, how many people who are alive that day will be damned? Countless. Countless people. This is a big deal. But that's when justice will be satisfied. Divine justice. That's, that's when the prayer of the saints, Revelation 6, the martyrs, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood, will be answered. The answer to that prayer necessarily demands that people be damned. Because the answer to that prayer will not happen until Christ comes back. And at the moment Christ comes back, it's over. You know, these things, these things ought, to, ought to make us stop and really consider the state of things, the state of people, the state of our world. And Christ is a very loving Savior. But Christ will also be a very righteous judge. And the people who face judgment rather than reward will see that all these things that they've, they've heard about, that they've said, nah, you guys are crazy, they're going to find them to be true. And it's going to be too late for them to do anything about it. We know from history, 20 years later, Sennacherib's two sons killed him. We know from history that the Assyrian Empire didn't last very long. There's a reason the Babylonians came, because the Assyrian Empire didn't last very long. Do you think the king of Assyria thought that Assyria within a hundred years would be negligible? No. By the strength of my hand, the Lord will humble the proud. And He may humble the proud in a way that they're not ready to hear. He may do to the proud what He did to the king of Assyria. So, our application for all this.
Is God sovereign? Yes. Is man responsible? Yes. That's what your Bible says. We don't need to try and, and say, well, it's... it's I, I, I could go for a while on the, the objections here. Okay. Suffice it to say, our Bible says man's responsible. It's simple. The king's responsible here for his wickedness. Even as the Lord has decreed it, even as the Lord is using him as the tool in his hand, don't approach the Bible and say, God can't do that. He did it. He did it here. He did it with the Babylonians later on. Take Scripture at face value. And where Scripture doesn't speak, don't try and make Scripture speak something that it doesn't speak. There are some things which are mysterious. And there's a level of mystery here. Let it be mysterious. But the response is here. You know, if our immediate response is, that's not right, that's not fair, I go back to, pray for mercy. <laughs> pray, worship this God. We, 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 we cite that passage in Isaiah all the time that talks about God's ways not being our ways. It can be very cliche-ish at times. But we wouldn't do things like this. We wouldn't write the story like this because that's just not fair. God wrote the story like this. This is His story. We the creatures, especially we His people, are bound to receive it, believe it, understand it as much as we can, and worship Him because of what He has said and who He is and how He governs His creation. What, what else? Is God in control? Yes. Is God in control of everything in your life? And I mean everything. Now here's some yeses. Remember that when things go south. I, I remember, I mean, when, when Katrina hit, what was it, 2005? We're in the Bible study at the prison. One of the guys raises his hand. He says, you know, God didn't want that to happen. I said, if God didn't want it to happen, why did it happen? Um, <laughs> if God didn't want, if it was not in God's will for the hurricane to come and hit New Orleans, would the hurricane have hit New Orleans? No. You remember a few years ago, people were praying here. They're talking about up to 30 inches of rain over there, not too far away from us. People are praying, okay, you didn't get the 30 inches of rain here. Guess what? Houston got 50. Why did Houston get 50? Because God sent the hurricane to Houston. Why? Do you think maybe he's trying to get people's attention? <laughs> that, that when all these things happen, you know, and, and it's just not natural disasters. Think about what's going on in the Middle East. Shouldn't that be getting people's attention? You got two, two sides, okay, shooting at each other. You got a bunch of lost people on one side shooting on the lost people on the other side. 
and they're going to hell. That's a big deal. But I mean, little things in, in, in our life. I mean, I had a hard time yesterday. I was trying to get this sermon prepared. We get this message about sin in a certain person's life within a marriage. And I had to stop for a few hours because I, I couldn't concentrate. It bothered me greatly. And I'm writing a sermon on God's sovereignty. Why did that sin happen? Why, why did it happen? Why has it happened? And why is it happening? Do you think God could have restrained that evil? He did it with Abimelech in Genesis. Why didn't he restrain that evil in that marriage? I don't know, but it bothered me. You know, sin ought to bother us. We get too numb with regard to sin. Especially ours. But we get too numb to sin. We don't, re we don't respond to sin with the, with the re repulsion that we should. You know, with, with, the, our, with disgust to sin. To people rebelling. People, especially, people who especially people who proclaim to be one of God's children doing it. But... But how do, how do we process that where these things happen? Is God sovereign? Yes. Why is it happening? I don't know, but it did. Somebody's got to, you got a, you got a spouse who has to deal with that sin of their partner. It's hard. And you go, God, why? We don't, again, we don't want to be just, well, you know, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. What do we do? We pray. We pray that God restrain that evil. We pray that God, God bring repentance. We pray that God bring holiness. But God has wired us to respond that way. We should. We don't want to take our doctrines and become emotionless and feelingless. I know that when we talk about feelings in the reform camp, there are some things that make give people goosebumps. But you read your Bible, God's people have emotions and God's people have feelings. Do we have to bump them up against Scripture? Yes. But the practical nature of what do we do when something really bad happens to us or to somebody we love? Is it that, well, God... God where, where was God? Well, no. If God did not have it in His plan for that to happen, it would not have happened. Think about if it was not in God's plan and thing, things happen that are not in God's plan. And He's not in control of them. Think about if you can't pray and have God do things in time and space. Hezekiah prayed. And how many shots were fired? Not a one. 185,000 divine shots were fired and took out the army of Assyria. But we have to live in the realm of the real here. That things happen which grieve us. And God is not asleep at the wheel. And I'll close, I'll close with a story. This, this time of year, 
people my age who are from where I'm from in northern Michigan, this time of year has a special significance when you're in your mid-60s or your 70s. You remember what happened 48 years ago this Friday. 48 years ago this Friday, there was an iron ore freighter on Lake Superior. And if you've never seen these freighters, I don't care where they are, you know, if you've never seen like container ships, you have no idea how big these things are. Well, there's an iron ore freighter that's two and a half football fields long. It's got 29,000 tons of iron ore on it. I don't know how those things can float myself. I don't get the, the physics behind that, but they do. So you've got an iron ore freighter, it's on Lake Superior. And this time of year, the Great Lakes can get pretty nasty. I lived near the Great Lakes for 56 years. When things get nasty on the Great Lakes, it's not like an inland lake. The Great Lakes are like inland seas. You don't mess with the Great Lakes when the waves come up. All of the shipwrecks over the hundreds of years which are sitting on the bottom of all the Great Lakes bear testimony to that. Well, 48 years ago Friday, the Edmund Fitzgerald has 29,000 tons of iron ore on it. 29 men on the boat. The gales of November, as the song says, come. And the gales of November came, and they came not too far west of we, where we volunteered at the prisons in the Upper Peninsula. And the gales of November came and took that 700-plus foot ship with 29,000 tons of iron ore on it and sent it to the bottom of Lake Superior like a toy. 29 men died. Gordon Lightfoot wrote a song, Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The older I get, the more that song touches me. And it touches me because of one line in that song. You got 29 families that lost their man. I'm guessing that they knew what the weather was that day, even without the internet. They were praying for their families. They were praying for the men on that boat. And God sent that boat to the bottom of Lake Superior with 29 men in it. We know that Jesus has the power to say, be still. And if he said, be still, Lake Superior would have been still. Lake Superior was not stilled that day. In the face of a hurricane west wind, as the song says, God's plan was to send that boat to the bottom of the lake. 29 men died. You grieve that. How many of those men went to heaven? How many go to hell? I don't know. Gordon Lightfoot was Canadian. He wrote the song, sang the song. He's raised Presbyterian. He knew the Westminster Confession. And he wrote something in that song right after he talks about the wreck. Because he says, and later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The next line in that song is this. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Does anyone know where the love of God goes 
when the waves turn the minutes to hours. That's very psalm-like, isn't it? He's posing a question. He's not posing a question, I believe, out of unbelief. He's posing it out of faith. Where is the love of God? Where was the love of God? Now, we know doctrinally there's an answer to it. But let's apply that in our lives. Something's going to happen to somebody in this room at some time, and it's going to be bad to you or a family member. And you may have that thought. Where was the love of God? I can see a psalmist writing that, wanting an answer in their pain. You may have that, and you may know that God is sovereign. I knew God was sovereign the day our son died. Could I have asked the question, where was the love of God? May 29th, 2002. You may have your May 29th, 2002. And you may ask me, where was the love of God when fill in the blank? Now, I know I have a doctrinal answer, but I'll tell you what, the day you ask me that question, the best response I can give you is to say nothing and hug you. We have to deal with these things in our lives where we don't have the answers. Why did the Edmund Fitzgerald sink another boat 10, 15 miles away not sink? Because God said that one was going to and God said the other one was not going to. We may not get the answer to that in this age. How do we respond? We respond by worshiping the God behind all of this. We respond by asking for mercy. God, be merciful to me. God, help me. God, help me get through this when I don't know the answers as to why this stuff is happening in my life. I know you're behind it. You know, we know that we can trust God in the storm at an eternal level because God is the one who brings the storm. But that doesn't make being in the storm any less painful. We're not stoics here. We respond as human beings. We want to be people who trust God. We want, we want answers, but God may not give us the answers. And it may not turn out the way we want it to in this age. But we know for eternity, it's going to turn out all right. God, help us to be faithful. Whenever stuff like this happens in our lives that God brings into our lives, let us respond with worship. God, let us respond with trust. Let us respond with faith even when we don't have the answers. Let's pray. Father, Father, I take comfort in the fact that You are in control. I take comfort in the fact that You are sovereign. But Father, I also know there are times when, when You do things in our lives, in my life, that cause me pain, that cause my brothers and sisters pain. 
Father, help us not to minimize the pain of our brothers and sisters. Father, let us not be Job's three friends after the first week as we encounter our brethren who are struggling with the realities of life that you have decreed. Father, help us to be people of love. Help us to be people of faith. Help us to be people who really do trust and obey, for there's no other way. In Christ's name, amen.